right. How are you guys doing today? And tonight or wherever you are catching us online, wherever, whenever you catch us, I'm so glad that you guys are here. Uh, you heard Pastor Gabe say that we're able to double our capacity, more than double our in-home capacity here. And that is hugely exciting because I get to see more faces. Now, I know you're looking around going, but there's empty chairs here already. Yes, and that's you out there watching us online. We've got empty chairs for you in here. I would love to be able to fill it up. There's something special about fellowship, about having people in here, knowing one another, being around one another. It's so encouraging, not just for me, because you guys in-house are encouraging enough. That's all I need is you guys. But there are so many more out there who could get what we have here, get more fellowship, and just more being a part of a body and being connected. The devil uses times like this to disconnect us from our routines, from our people that care about us, from just life, gets us isolated, gets us this feeling. Even in the midst of people, sometimes we can feel isolated. And that's when the enemy just knows that you're right and he starts picking at you. That's kind of what we're talking about in the book of Job. So if this is your first time here, welcome. If it's your first time listening online, welcome. I want to encourage you to go back, though, especially if you're online through YouTube or Facebook. Go back, look at the archives of the previous messages. Kind of lays the groundwork for where we are. Because we are in Job. Right now we're in chapter 3. We're studying the, the life of Job. It's called Blameless. And it's, it's heavy. It can be heavy. I will admit to you that even prepping this morning, getting ready, usually I'm kind of bouncy and bubbly and super excited and I'm just ready to get going. And I tell you, I look at chapter three and I'm like, what is there to be super excited about? It is just a continuation of last week when we see Job just pushed to his breaking point. He is pushed beyond what many of us, praise God, will never experience what Job is experiencing, these multiple layers of attack that are coming his way, and he is pushed to the very limit. And his response, though, his response is what we study. He's able to maintain his integrity. He's able to separate what he can't understand from knowing that God is good. But the problem is today, when these attacks come one time after another, just faster than he can deal with them, even Job, a Bible hero, starts to lose his resolve, starts to question. And I'm no different. I have times when I read things like this and I compare that to what's going on in the world now and you just think, ah, oh, is there going to be an end to it? Is there an end? And if there's an end, what's it going to look like? Is it, is everything I've ever counted on, everything I've ever loved about church and my job and the world and everything. Is it going to look even close to that when this is all said and done? It's that kind of uncertainty that the devil just preys on. And we're going to see that. So last week, when Job finally breaks his silence, he's been sitting silently suffering for all this time. His friends are gathered around him. And finally, Job breaks the silence. And when he does, he's just lashing out as somebody who's in pain. It's not necessarily the physical pain. He's got physical pain. He's got pain of the loss of, of things, of, of even his children, which is incredible pain. I would never, never want that for any of us. But more so than that, Job is in a place where he is just suddenly 
questioning, have I lost God? This fellowship, this intimacy, and this awareness of who God is, walking with him every day, the fact that every blessing that he has has come from God, and Job very much acknowledges that, but suddenly, in the midst of when he needs him the most, he's got silence. He can no longer hear from God, and this is what's causing him to cry out. Now, Job is wondering, have everything that I've ever thought about God, everything I've ever placed my trust and my faith in, has that all been wrong? Is God, instead of being a loving provider, somebody that I can count on, is he instead vengeful, angry, absent, judgmental, and maybe even worse than that, the thought of just being of being on a whim, he will punish people. We see that at Greek mythology and Roman mythology all the time. Gods just have this, this whimsy idea one day, I'm just going to punish some people just to see what happens. Job is in this place of questioning that. That's not an uncommon feeling, though, for a lot of people, both back then and here on earth today. Fearing this vengeful, judgmental God is an everyday way of life for a lot of people. That is a bad place to be. But that's where Job is, and it's pushing him to this limit. And again, we see this, just this lament of somebody who thought everything I ever thought I knew is called into question. And nobody likes that. Everything you always thought you knew, you spent your whole life building up to what you know right now. And to have that shaken is something that's never comfortable. But in the midst of all that, in the midst of all this pain, all this anguish, Job still refuses to curse God for his problems. Instead, what he does, and we saw last week, he just goes back and he starts cursing the day that he was born, cursing his existence at all. Like, God, I don't question you. I know you. You are, you are a great God, but why am I even here? I would be so much better if I never existed at all. And this is where Job is. We see at the end, of last week's, the last scripture I shared, Job 3.10, he's cursing the day he was born because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. Meaning the day he was born, in this lament, the day he was born was just the beginning of a downhill tumble. You're born, and then it's all downhill from there. Who's ever heard that statement before? That's a terrible way to look at life, but that's, that's this dark path that Job is getting drawn into. And he's starting, he's starting to feel it. He's starting to get beat up a little bit. His resolve is wavering. And he is ripe for the enemy just to double down on his attacks. So that's where we are. So instead of saying, if I can't undo my birth, which is what he was praying for last weekend, crying out to just undo my birth like it never was, the whole day, everything. Then he switches. Why couldn't I just have died at birth? And then, why couldn't you just take me now? That's a dark place that Job is in. And I have a question. Think about this. We'll revisit this at the end of the message. Out there online, wherever you are, think about this question. It's just between you and God. Had Job known about the arrangement between God and Satan, would he have reacted differently? 
So we know now that Job is completely unaware of things that are going on in the heavenly realms. He doesn't know that there was a challenge from Satan. He doesn't know that God had allowed it, but only up to a certain point, that there are rules. He didn't know any of this. But if he did, would he reacted better? Or would it have been worse? I had somebody last service to say he'd have been angry. He'd have been angry at God for allowing all this. So much better that we don't know than to know that God was allowing it for some reason. Here's the second half of that question. How would you have responded in that place? How would you have responded if you were Job and knowing this? Now, I'll caution you that your answer might reveal more about where you are with God than you want it to. But think about that as we go into the word. Let's get into it. First scripture for this week, Job chapter 3, verse 11. Again, why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb, and expire? What a horrific thing for him to say and to wish that on his parents, on his mother. But here's the thing. I don't think he was wishing it on his parents. I don't think they crossed his mind at all. This is that level of being absorbed in your pain, absorbed in yourself and what's going on to even be able to see outside of yourself and outside of your immediate pain and your wish to end that pain as quickly as you can. I don't think he thought about his parents at all, but what a terrible place to be. All I want is my pain to end and I don't care how anybody else deals with it. It leads to so many problems. And this thought of being self-absorbed when you're going through a trial, that is a red flag to Satan. That's saying, hey, they are ready for you to attack. They're ready for you to double down because they are so far beyond any reason. They're just absorbed in their pain and they want it to end at all costs. And they're not thinking of how it affects anyone else, how it affects you, God, how it affects anything. They just want it to end. And I know, I know that Satan just waits for those times. Like any good opponent, he watches for weakness and watches for that moment. And then he'll attack. I think that's one of those windows that he looks for. So next scripture, Job chapter 3, verse 12. Why did the knees receive me? And why the breasts that I should suck? Okay, so this, this seems very much just like an image of the birth. Job is lamenting the fact that he was ever born at all. And why, why didn't I just die at birth? So it'd be very easy to look at that and just say, okay, it's just another imagery of, of the birth. But it's more than that. Remember, I told you this is written in, in a poetry form, ancient style of poetry. It's not rhyme, but it's comparison contrasts in the same verse. So this is an image right here. Why did the knees receive me? And then part B, and why the breast? That's the father and the mother blessing. Let me explain that to you. Rather than to just be an imagery of birth, this is actually a description of what happens in this society when a child is born, okay? I'll explain it even more. If you have the King James Version, King James Version of the Bible, it's the only version that takes that word receive and uses the word prevent instead. Just a translation issue Uh, But the word prevent, if you see prevent, then the thought is the knees would prevent the baby from falling, a brand newborn baby from falling to the ground. 
and just being left as trash. You could assume it like that. In fact, that's how it's taught with that translation. But I think it's different than that, and here's why. Remember, again, the poetry format, the first half is the father's blessing. The second half is the mother's nurturing that we see. And that goes back to the society that Job is in at this time. It's a patriarchal society. As a baby was born, nowadays when a baby is born, one of the first things they do is hand it to the mother for that bonding time. In this society, patriarchal society, what they did is immediately hand the baby to the patriarch, who might have been the father, but it might have been a grandfather at the time, and immediately that baby would receive a blessing. Immediately. So when we see that idea of why did the knees receive me, the baby would be brought in, set on the knees or on the lap, and it would receive its first blessing. We see that if you want to look at it on your own, Genesis 50, 22 uh, is a story of, of Joseph. Okay, Joseph is nearing the end of his life, and he's seeing his grandchildren born. And at this point, the, the last verse there, um, and the, the son of Manasseh was placed at birth on Joseph's knees. So it's just this idea of the patriarchal blessing that's happening. So that's what's happening here. So bottom line here is that Job is, is saying, if I had to be born, why was I ever blessed? What was the point of that? And if I was ever blessed, then why did anybody feed me to keep me alive? What's the point of that? Job is taking his, his father's blessing and he's taking his mother's nurturing things that God intended for him, for his good, and to grow him and to keep him alive, his very breath, and saying, curse that. Why did that even happen? He's in so much pain that he's saying all that was for nothing. It's, so, it's such a place of torment. Again, I mentioned this last week. Guarantee nobody has any verse from Job chapter 3 tattooed as their life verse on their hand. Nobody has that on a, on a uh, scripture on their mirror, anything encouraging, because it's, it's dark. It's dark and it's painful. And if you look at it, you can just feel Job's pain coming out of this. But there's a lesson to be had in that pain. And we're going to get there, so just bear with me. Job chapter 3, verse 13, For now I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest. He's talking about if, he, if they hadn't fed him, if they hadn't blessed him, and just let him hit the ground and just die as a baby, then I would have at least slept and had rest. Now, this isn't, this isn't just poetic hyper, hyperbole. Job believes that. He believes that that's how it works. Back in those times, they didn't have a concept of what heaven and hell was. They didn't understand the difference, and we don't find that until much later when it starts to become clear as it's slowly revealed. But back then, they just had this idea of a place called Sheol. And Sheol was a place, it's just a place of darkness. It's a place where the dead went. Good and bad and everything in between. If you died, you went down to Sheol. Again, neither good nor bad, just dark. Later on in Job, he says this in chapter 33, and we'll get there later. 33, 18, he keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Sheol. So that's what Job had in his mind where he would go. Later on, though, when he says these things about Sheol, believing that, okay, I just wish I would have died because then at least then I'd be at peace. God challenges him later. 
Again, much later, chapter 38, verse 17, God says, have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? He's asking Job, all right, if that's what you think, where'd you get this information? Because it's wrong. That's not what God wants Job to think of in the afterlife. When he has an eternal perspective, that's not the perspective he wants. But he goes on, he even doubles down more, talking about being at rest. Uh, chapter 3, verse 14, 15, not only is he he's at rest, but he's at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who were filling their houses with silver. So he's basically just doubling down on this idea. Doesn't matter, I'm, I'll be there, I've lost everything, I'll be there, princes, kings, they'll be there, we'll all be there. Job sees this place as this great equalizer. We're all, we're all going to be the same. It's really the closest thing to the idea of salvation that Job can envision at that time. And he's actually pleading for it right here. Chapter 3, verse 16 through 19 gets even darker. Or like a miscarriage which is discarded, I would not be as infants that never saw light. There the wicked cease from raging, and there the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Again, he thinks that this is going to be a place where, there, where there's no suffering, and he's just free from that. He's got one major fact, theological fact, about his version of what the afterlife is, in Sheol. He's got it completely wrong. The wicked, as we know, do not cease from raging. The prisoners don't rest. The slaves aren't set free. That's not how that works. That's only done through the work of Jesus. And soon, soon, in the grand scheme of things, Jesus will come to set the captives free. Remember that scripture from Isaiah, Isaiah 61.1, also echoed in Luke 4.18, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Jesus will do that. That doesn't just happen in a place that Job knows as Sheol. And his key error here, his key theological error, is just thinking that they're all going to find rest. And here's why, though. It's a common thing. But if you thought that, if you thought that whether you're wicked or whether you're, you're good, whether you're evil or good or anywhere in between, you're all going to find rest in the afterlife if you thought that really. Why even bother then? Why bother living the life the way you should? Why bother striving to be righteous, which is what Job did? Job didn't just accidentally be seen as righteous in the eyes of the Lord. He worked at it. He offered sacrifice. He interceded in prayer. He did all those right things. And, and he was intentional about it. But why bother with all that if everybody ends up in the same place? And that's not just an ancient idea. People today feel that very same thing, that no matter what happens, well, we'll all, we'll all end up in a good place. Let me share something with you. As long as we're in a dark area with the book of Job. Let's talk about Columbine. When I say Columbine, if you're here in Colorado, you immediately think the Columbine 
massacre at the school. And that's what I want to talk about here. The two, the two young men who were murderers in that, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, they left behind a videotape, actually a series of, of clips explaining their motivation for this, why they did what they did. And there are many other things in there, but the part I want to focus on is just this. At the end of it, Klebold, uh, Dylan Klebold, he says goodbye to his parents, and he concludes with this statement, I didn't like life too much. Just know that I'm going to a better place than here. So incredibly, this, this young man, tormented and suffering with, a, with an internal pain that we can't understand, but enough to drive him to no longer care at all about what happened to anybody else, all he knew is that he was in pain, and at best he could have somebody share in that pain, but he certainly didn't care about anyone else, his parents or anyone. It was just more than he could bear. But in the midst of that, he thought he was going to a better place. Now, we don't know his relationship with Christ, whether he had one or whether he didn't. We do know that he grew up in a religious household. His mom was a devout Jew. His dad was a Lutheran. They celebrated Seder dinner at their home. They went to church. Again, I'm not going to question his relationship with the Lord, but he certainly knew of the Lord. He certainly knew some teachings. So where would you get this idea that even if you did these sorts of things, you would go to a better place? Okay, salvation of Jesus is offered to all who accept him. It has nothing to do with our sinful life on this earth, but acceptance and redemption through Jesus. But that's another story. Let's go back even further, though. If you look at his Jewish heritage, his Jewish upbringing, let's go back to some Old Testament scripture. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 2 through 3. Let me read this to you. This is their description of what Sheol looks like, or not what it looks like, but how, how it works. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. You could read that and logically conclude either the Scripture is wrong, because that's not how it works, or there's something else going on there. Let's look at it a little bit further. It's not in error. This is not a theological error here. What this is, is a concept that we see all throughout Scripture called progressive revelation. Progressive revelation says, essentially, it's a theological concept, so it's much deeper than this, but it starts out, God will reveal himself to you as much as is necessary for the time and the situation that you're in. And throughout history, as time progresses towards the second coming of Christ, more and more will be revealed. Progressive revelation. So it means things that we see back in some Old Testament scripture need to be seen through their own lens, but also through one of 
revealing slowly more and more about Christ, about the need for Christ or about Christ himself. And we will see that ultimately then in the book of Revelation, the last one, where everything is finally revealed. So that's this idea of progressive revelation. Now, let's look back at that Ecclesiastes scripture where it says, this, it is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked. What's the one fate? How do you reconcile him saying the righteous and the wicked, there's one fate for them all? Job would have been thinking they all go to Sheol. What do we know now, though? The one fate for the righteous and for the wicked is judgment before Christ. Matthew 25, 31, 32. We have it on the screen. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. This is the judgment of Christ. And that is the one fate he's talking about. But that part wasn't revealed to Job at this point. It wasn't revealed until much, much later, obviously. But right now, here's what's important. Right now, Job isn't even worried about judgment and penalties and sin. All he sees is the pain he's in, and he wants the end of it. And he's willing to do anything or go anywhere, almost, to put an immediate end to his troubles. Chapter 3, verse 20, why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul? Have you ever said, don't give me a false sense of hope? I'd rather have no hope at all than a false sense of hope. This is the idea that Job's getting at here. Why is light giving to him who suffers? So he's suffering. Why give me any encouragement? Why even let the sun shine on me? Why do any of that? It's wasted on me. And life to the bitter of soul. So his soul is feeling very bitter right now. Why am I still alive? This is what he's questioning his head. And again, it's a, it's a bad place for him to be in. But he goes on. Chapter 3, verse 21, 22. Who long for the death, but there is none. And dig for it more than hidden treasures. He is praying for death. Who rejoice greatly and exult when they find the grave. Notice in all this, Job never, ever takes his own life. He never talks about taking his own life. He never says he wants to take his own life, just that he wishes it never was. He understands in the midst of all this pain, he understands that his life belongs to God. It is not his to take. It belongs to God. But he does question why it's even there to begin with. Chapter 3, verse 23. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? Just continuing to say, why, why give me any of these things? Here's something to look at in this scripture, though. Job, again, he's reaffirming that fearing losing God in his direction is, is what his lament there is. But God gave him his prosperity. God gave him his protection. But that very same protection that all the way back in chapter 1 Remember, the devil actually accuses and says, you've built a hedge around him, a hedge of protection. And the devil recognizes it as that. But here, Job is taking that very thing that God is protecting him with and saying, it's a prison. Why am I in this prison? He can't see options. He can't see a way out. And this very thing now has become a prison for him. 
And he's lamenting that thing that God intended for good, and he's saying, why? Why do I even have that? But even Satan knew. What we need, though, is we need to know the difference. Because when a wall is put around us, or a hedge, or a cage, or bars, or whatever it is, when God does it, it's for our protection. And that hedge can look like a delay in plans. That hedge can look like the Israelites wandering the desert for 40 years. It can look like a job we didn't get. It can look like a coronavirus that pushes pause on an entire year. It can look like that when God does it. When we do it, when we say, I need a hedge, I need a wall, I need protection, I need to build a wall so that nothing can hurt me, now that's from the devil. Satan wants you to think that you can build your own wall or your own hedge and that will protect you. It can't. All it does is separate you from God, and we need to know the difference. A wall, a hedge is, is very indiscriminate. It, won't, it might not let in bad things, but it also won't let in good things. So if you're in a place where you're struggling to hear from the Lord, you're just not hearing his, his voice, you're not feeling his presence, you need to ask yourself, have I placed a wall around myself to protect me from people, from the world, from jobs, from things that come my way, and it's also hurting my closeness, my intimacy with God? Because that's how it works. And we do that in our deliverance ministry all the time, is we look for those places where we have put our hands out and said, no, don't come near me. This is where Job is. He is struggling with that idea. Verse 24, for my groaning comes at the sight of my food and my cries pour out like water. Crying out in pain here is normal. I think that's why that verse is in here. It's to let us know crying out in pain, mourning, grief, are normal parts of the human experience. Being stoic is not. I've quoted before from Marcus Aurelius in, in the Meditations on Stoicism. It has some things to offer, certainly, but it is absolutely wrong when it says, hiding your grief. Don't expect, don't, uh, don't show your grief to anybody. Don't express your grief because that's bad and that controls you, I would argue just the opposite. The more you try and hold that grief in, the more it's going to control you. By expressing that grief, by getting it out, by crying out in pain, that's where we find our deepest need for God. That moment of our deepest pain and our deepest grief, that is when there's no time where it's more clear how, more, how much more we need God. Our need for the Father is never more clear than when we're hurt. Chapter 3, verse 25. For what I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. This is that idea that I talked about at the beginning. Job's not blissfully ignorant. He's not just going through his life going, la, 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 things are great, sun's shining. He knows that it's all because of his relationship with God. And again, he intercedes, he prays, he offers sacrifice. He knows that his wealth and his stability and his health and everything he has is from God. It's a gift from God. And his biggest fear has always been that those things would be taken away. And now he's saying, what I fear has happened. And then finally, 
Last scripture in this section, he sums up his situation. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. He's not at rest. He's not at ease. We have a picture of a man who up until all this stuff happened to him, he was very much at ease. He was a hard worker, so he wasn't physically at rest. But in his spirit, he was at rest. He knew he could trust in God. He knew God was there with him. (coughs) Excuse me. He knows that everything he had was from God and that God would never leave him. And now, though, he's questioning all of that. Where is God in the midst of all this, in the midst of this pain? And here's what I want you to just take away from this. Satan is using a temporary state of pain, severe pain, incredible pain and anguish, but with a long-term, heavenly, eternal perspective, no matter how long his time on earth lasted in pain, it's short, it's momentary. And Satan's using that momentary, temporary state of pain to cause Job to doubt everything that he thought he knew. Everything he thought he could count on is now up in the air. And he doesn't know what he can do. That's where Job's lament comes from. It's not from physical pain and from physical loss. It's from the uncertainty. I don't know what to believe now. So let's go back to that question I asked you at the beginning. Had Job known about the deal or the arrangement between Satan and God, knew that there are parameters and knew that there are rules for this game, how would he have reacted differently, better, worse, the same? But again, how would would you have responded? The answer for you, for that question, probably depends on whether you feel you're in a place where you can trust God or not. If you feel, I can trust God. I've seen him work in my life. I've seen him be faithful again and again. There's no reason I've ever seen to not trust God and his goodness. So even though I'm going through a painful time right now, I can trust him. If you're in that place, that's a great place to be. That's where God wants us to be. But that only comes from experience. I've seen it, and I know it's going to happen again. That's why we have all this scripture. We can see these people march through times equal to and far worse in many cases than we'll ever go through. Praise God for that. And they're still able to maintain and hold on to that trust. It helps us with what we're going through. That's why, that's why a book like Job, there are a lot of people like, why is that even in there? Because it's not a fun book. It's in there precisely because it isn't a fun book. And life isn't always fun. But in the end, we see Job hold on, and we see Job persevere in the face of all these trials, not cursing God, but crediting God with everything that he has. And in the end, he is restored and then some. Spoiler alert, I should have said. That's how the book ends. That's why a book like Job as unfun as it can be to study. That's why it's there. For those times when you can't feel God's presence, Job had lost the feeling of God's presence. He had always heard his voice, always had an assuredness in his heart that God was there with him. And now in his time of greatest pain and need, it's crickets. He's got nothing. That's why it's here. 
for those times when you can't feel God's presence because that's the very time when the enemy's going to double down and attack you the most. When you're uncertain about what the finish line looks like, when you're uncertain, how long is this going to last? Can I do it? When you've lost that picture of the end, that's when it happens. I'll tell you a story about a, a swimmer from the 1950s. Her name is Florence Chadwick. Back in the 50s, they did all kinds of like great feats of, of athleticism, and it was kind of a fun time when people were trying to break records and things, right? Back in the 50s, Florence Chadwick set the record, a female record, for swimming the English Channel from France to, to Britain. Um, she, it's 21 miles, and she set the women's world record one direction. The very next year, she turned around and did it again the other direction, which for some reason nobody ever did. It was unheard of, but she did it, broke the record again. Only two short years later, only two short years later, she tried to swim the 26 miles between Catalina Island and the coast of California. Okay? 26 miles, slightly longer than this, but the English Channel is known for being stormy, and it's a difficult swim. So Catalina would have been just a, would have been a cakewalk, should have been for her, but she failed in that attempt. And the noteworthy thing, the reason that here we are, 70 years later, talking about her attempt is not anything, it's not jellyfish stings, which she had. It's not shark attacks, which she had. It's not uh, physical pain and, and exhaustion, which she had. It's none of that. It's the reason that she failed. The reason she failed is because she gave up. And the reason she gave up is because of fog of all things. How could fog cause somebody to, like that to fail in a, in a grand attempt like this? She lost sight of the destination. She lost sight of it. Swimming hard. She's a strong swimmer. Things are going well. She's overcome so much already, and fog rolls in. Now, all of a sudden, she can't see the end. She doesn't know how long this is going to last, only that it's just going to continue. She had no idea, and she gave up. When they finally pulled her out of the water, she was only one mile from finishing. One mile from the finish. But mentally, she lost it because she couldn't see the end. This is the same anguish that Job is going through. If she could have seen how it ends, if she could have seen the safety of the shore, she could have done another mile, I'm sure. But she couldn't see that. And this is where Job is. Job can't see an end to this. He doesn't know how this story ends. And so he's beginning to lose hope, and the devil's preying on that. We see that in our lives all the time. When we're in pain and we're taking a beating, all we can do is focus on the beating. When we've suffered a loss, all we can do is focus on the loss. It's almost impossible to have an eternal perspective because we can't see how it ends. We have to trust that it does. And we have to know that God will end it in a way that's ultimately good for us. I wrote this down. It's just a way that God revealed. I was kind of trying to feel, how do I express that anguish that you would feel of not knowing where the finish line is, where not knowing when it ends? And I wrote this down. Like a swimmer looking for the shore, a sailor straining to see the glimmer of a lighthouse in a storm, or a pilot low on fuel searching in the dark for a beacon of safety. 
Our heart knows intuitively that it's out there waiting and offering shelter if we can just find it. If we can just hold on long enough to make it to the destination. Job couldn't see an end and he was losing the will to keep looking. He couldn't see a rescue coming. If you're in that place and you can't feel God's presence, you need to trust in his heart. If you can't hear him, you need to trust in what he's already done for you. It's why we have the testimony board over there. It's a brand new thing. I did it last week. The reason we have the testimony board is so that when you have a time where you're not feeling that God is moving, like I need a miracle and God's not moving in my life, go look at the board and look at things that people have put on there. I was trusting in God for a miracle. I was trusting in God to deliver me, and he did. Every one of you has a story like that. But there are also people like you, like that, sitting here who go, I need God to move, and I can't see an end to it. I'm in pain, and I can't see an end to it. Knowing that he still moves, he still works miracles, and he will because people post them on the board. The testimony is how we overcome in the end. The scripture promises us that. And if you can't see a way out, know that you're not alone. Scripture is all through of Bible heroes who couldn't see a way out, but they knew that there was one. They knew they couldn't see it, and if they just held on, that lighthouse would come into view. There's two scriptures. Psalm 46.1, David wrote this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then this one, Psalm 18.2, I love this. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. David wrote that when he was in the midst of just constantly being attacked and bombarded and on the run. And, and he had this great destiny and he knew it, but it sure didn't look like that at the time. But he was able to cry out and say, the Lord is my deliverer. That's where my prayer is that we could be. If you can't see the end, you can't feel his presence with you now, that doesn't mean that he's not there. Persevere and hold on because he is your fortress and your deliverer. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for who you are, for your greatness and your mercy and your sovereignty over all the world that we have your word your word both written and your word spoken directly into our hearts from the Holy Spirit to help us hang on in a time of storm, to help us have an assuredness, not just we hope, but we know that there is deliverance from those attacks that come our way. We know that there is deliverance from the momentary troubles that we have on earth. And whether that happens tomorrow or the next day or when we meet Jesus face to face, we know, Father God, that it's there. And it's that assuredness that allows us to hold on. So, Father, all those things that torment our heart right now, that make us feel alone, that make us feel uncertain, Father, rush into our hearts right now and just reaffirm who you are. And more than that, who we are to you, that you love us, that you will never forsake us, you will never leave us. And help us to rest easy in that comfort no matter what we go through, knowing that you're with us.
Father, we bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So next week, we're going to go into chapter 4. If you want to study ahead, you can do that. Now that Job has broken the silence of this mourning period, um, his friends, feel free to start dispensing wisdom. And we get to see how that happens next week. Let's celebrate communion together. If you have the cups, if you're here in house and you grabbed one, grab it. If you're at home, whatever you have, let's celebrate. And remember what Jesus did for us. Jesus endured such incredible pain and torment on the cross, and he did that for you. We can talk the theology of he did it to fulfill prophecy. He did it to overcome the schemes of the enemy. But the bottom line is he did it for you. And he did it knowing that you needed a savior, and he did it knowing that that would reconcile you to the Father. So you never had to be alone. And if you accept that sacrifice on the cross, take the body. And the blood of Christ covers us. So when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see us. Job was blameless. We are, most of us, far from that. But thank you to Jesus Christ and his blood on the cross shed for you to cover you. When the Father sees you, he sees you as pure and covered in the blood of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your greatness and your mercy and for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. The greatness of 
your mercy and love at the feet of Jesus and we cry holy 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 the land. 